1 Corinthians chapter 14. So we're going to wrap things up in um, this kind of penultimate section of the, the letter of 1 Corinthians. And then we'll take a break for a couple of weeks. So next week and the week after, we'll um, look at some um, Advent uh, passages and just kind of lead into the 23rd, Sunday 23rd, when we're going to have our kind of carol service at 6 o'clock. But yeah, I'm just going to wrap this up, wrap the second or the last part of chapter 14 up this morning. And then after Christmas, we'll pick things up, we'll finish off chapter 15 and chapter 16. And then after that, we're going to move on to a, a, a new series in Ecclesiastes, which will be interesting. So we're going to go all Old Testament, which will be good. Um, so we'll read, we'll read the passage together in a minute. So it's going to be verse 26 to verse 40. Before we do, let's just kind of remind us of, of what the Apostle Paul is doing here. So chapter 8, all the way from chapter 8 through to chapter 14, Paul is, is really bringing some, um, some directives and some correctives to the church who are gathering in Corinth. And remember, this church is messy they're, they're misinterpreting all sorts of teaching that Paul is bringing. They're, they're establishing their own principles for the gathering. They're mistreating each other. And it seems to be anything but what Paul told them to do when they gathered together. And, and, he, and he works really hard for chapter after chapter, raising specific issues and saying, this, this isn't what it should be like. This isn't what it should look like when the church gathers together and, and he corrects them and shepherds them and leads them into into a more excellent way to be a more excellent excellent way for the church to gather and to to unite together and in fact the the majority of what the apostle paul writes in the letters that we see in the new testament take that kind of form that he's he's writing to churches so every now and again he writes to individuals but predominantly he's writing to churches to to tell them and to and to show them this is what the church looks like this is what the gathering looks like. And, and letter after letter, and we've certainly seen it in this letter to the church in Corinth, you just see the heart of Paul being poured out for the church. You see his passion for the church. You see that he is, he is, he is um, zealous for, for the church to be as close as it can be to, to being a perfect reflection of the communion that we see in the Trinity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That he is... He just pours his life into, into this thing, into the church. You see, letter after letter, he is training the church up. He's training church leaders, men and women, how to, how to lead the church well. He's equipping the saints as he writes to them. He's defending the church. He's kinda, he's kinda, he sees walls come in to attack and he's defending the church robustly. You see that Paul literally gives his life for the church. So he's given a call to go to the Gentiles and he literally puts his life on the line to see this gathering, to see this church, this, this thing that he's so zealous about, to see it multiply and, and extend out across the known world. And in his second letter, in 2 Corinthians, you see kind of how far Paul is willing to go to do that. That he takes this calling from God uh, to go and to, and, to, and to be a herald, to be an ambassador for Christ, to multiply the church and extend the kingdom out. And you see how far he's willing to go, that he suffers illness, he suffers persecution. He's, he's shipwrecked three times in this endeavor to try and push the church out. And, and um, on one of those occasions, he's shipwrecked and he manages to swim to shore and thinks everything's okay. And, and not long as he'd been on shore, he gets bitten by a snake. He gets 
beaten up, he gets imprisoned. Paul literally gives his life for the church. He gives his life to see these communities of life, of light being extended across the world. We've already read that he's willing to become all things. He's willing to become nothing so that some might be saved, so that they're added into the gathering. Not so that they can just be saved and, and be happy individuals and be, and be freed from the shackles of sin and enjoy life on their own, but know that, so that they're saved and pulled into the family of God. He's so passionate and zealous about, about union, isn't he? We just see him just bringing that message to bear time after time. You are united in Christ. You are united through one spirit. We have not been saved to be lone rangers, but saved to be brought into the family of God. So exciting just to see and just to just to um, examine Paul's life and just see how zealous and passionate he is for the calling that Christ has given him to be all things to all men, so that some may be saved, so that they are brought into the family of God. And we see the lengths that he is willing to go to do that. And Paul is a great example, but we've already read that Paul is just imitating Christ, isn't he? He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And, and actually, he is a flawed imitation of Christ. He is a broken man. So if we want to see someone who is even more zealous for the church, who is even more passionate for, for the gathering of God's people, who is even more passionate for, for, for men and women and boys and girls, not to be saved as individuals, but to be brought into the family of God, to be united, we, we can look to Paul, we can look to Christ and see even more passion and even more zeal there. We see that Christ came to save sinners. He came to purchase a bride. And so as we sit here this morning, and there's just a few of us here, we need to know that this isn't inconsequential. This gathering, there's just a handful of us here, is worth fighting for. It's worth defending. It's worth being as zealous and as passionate as Paul is, and as we see Christ is. So I want to ask us this morning, before we even jump into the text this morning, what is your attitude as you come in to this gathering this morning? What were you thinking before you arrived here this morning? What sorts of things were priorities in your mind? Where were, where were your passions lying as you walked in the door this morning? Are you zealous sitting here this morning for this thing that you've been brought into? Are you passionate for your brothers and sisters in Christ this morning? We need to see that the gathering here, the corporate gathering specifically we're going to see this morning, is precious. It is powerful. It is significant. The church, the family of God, is God's mission strategy for the world. That's how he's going to save this place. So each of the 8,000 people who live in the area of Lark Lane, each of them, the Imago Dei, bearing the image of God himself. As we reach out, as we push out from Liberty Church, we are not, we're not taking the gospel out. We're not drawing people in here so that they can have a better individual life, so that they can receive freedom from their sin and then go back to their homes and have a happy life. We're pushing out the gospel and we're drawing them into a family. We want them to be united to, to Christ. And as they are united to Christ, united to his bride, the church. We want to pull them into a family. Pull them into a gathering which is safe, which is where they can call home, which isn't a free-for-all and they can just come and do whatever they please, but actually bring them into a gathering where there are loving, 
parameters. And so how do we do that well? When we gather, how do we do that well? What is important when we gather? We're going to see in this short passage here three things that Paul really wants the church in Corinth to to grab hold of and never move away from as they come together, specifically corporately as the family of God come together and they gather together. Three things he wants them to do. Number one, to participate. Number two, to come and, and come in an orderly way. And number three, to gladly submit to authority. So let's read uh, the text together and then I'll pray and then we'll take our time just looking at those three things. Verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And each in turn, I'll let someone interpret For if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the gathering that we are brought into this morning. We thank you that we have been grafted in and brought into the family of God and we get these these points through the week where we can come together corporately to to stand together to pray together to worship together to submit to the authority of your word together and we we don't take this time lightly so father over the next few minutes I ask that that this would be fruitful that we would be built up that we would learn more of you and as we as we fill our heads with more knowledge that our hearts would be stirred and our affections would be stirred more for you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just bring clarity where it is needed. Help me as I uh, lead us through this. And where there is difficulty and where there is tension, um, Father, I pray that you would bring peace and that we would rest in the truth of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this thing that we have been brought into, the thing that Paul is so passionate about, the thing that Paul is willing to lay his life down, the thing that that Jesus died to purchase, the bride of Christ. There are ways that we can engage, there are ways that we can respond, there are ways when we gather that we we can do this well and we can do it to the glory of God. Firstly, in verse 26, Paul says a a way that we should do this well when we come together is to participate. 
So he says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So, so firstly, he's saying when you come together. So there's, a, there's an expectation, Paul is saying, that you actually do that, that we come together. And you do see churches kind of, um, some of them might lay, lay loosely to, to the corporate gathering. But Paul is saying this is something that you do. You come together. You can't do this on your own. Like we just said, when we're saved, we're not saved into a life of individualism. We're saved into a family. And so, and so fundamentally, we come together. That's what we do on a Sunday. And we will live and we will die by this. And yes, we push things out in the week and we prioritize gospel community. And that is a time when we come together. But we will always fight for this and contend for drawing together as the corporate gathering on a Sunday, on a Wednesday, as much as we can. And in fact, that is, that is who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the gathering. He's instructing the gathering. So we come together and when we come together, we participate. So, so Paul describes communal acts. He says, each one when you come. Each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So there's a sense in which Paul is not only just expecting them to come together, but as they come together, he's expecting them to have prepared something or come ready to, to contribute something to the gathering. And so when we come together, we should come ready to participate. And what does that look like? Well, the, the ideal, I think, that Paul is painting here is that there is space, with, space within our liturgy on a Sunday morning for tongues and for prophecy. And, and we talked a little bit about this over the last few weeks, that just the limitations of our time and our space don't make that, don't make that practical for us at the moment. But we want to fight for that. We want to contend for that. We want to make space for us to hear from God, not just for us to kind of direct things up that way, but for him to speak to us through his word, by the Holy Spirit, but also through the spiritual gifts. But the very least, if we are constrained by time or practicalities, at the very least, we can contribute to the gathering by caring for one another. I don't know whether you've ever thought about singing hymns or songs or choruses as, as encouraging one another. It depends who you're standing next to, has to be said. If you stand next to me, maybe not so much. But, but I think that it, that is one way that we can encourage each other. I so often do this and, it, and it's a trap that we fall into where I sing the songs and, and I kind of go into my own little bubble and this is about me and God and a time for me to respond to God. And, and there is something right in that, but there's also a sense I can do that in the car, I can do that in the shower. Johnny does it in the, in the shower every day. I can hear it through the roof. We can do that on our own all the time, but there is a sense that, guys, we're, we're here together. And so, yes, we sing to God and we declare who he is and we... And we, and we revel in everything that we read in, in who we are and who God is. But we also sing over one another. We encourage one another with the truth of the gospel. Because the reality is every one of us as we come through that door have had different weeks, different days, even different mornings. I can I just say even this morning I need to hear your, your songs and your singing this morning. I do. Because it encourages me. It stares my affections for Christ. And so even in bringing a hymn, if you're not coming with a lesson, you're not coming with a revelation or a tongue or interpretation, if you come and you just sing, you are building up the body and doing that. So come ready to contribute. Don't, don't, don't come and let's just fall into a trap of this is business between me and God. This is business between you and God and the body in which he has brought you into. And so we care for one another. And whatever we bring, it may be a tongue, it may be a revelation, it may be a lesson, 
It may just be, be singing. Whatever we bring, we bring it. And I'm going to say this maybe for the last time, but we've heard it week after week after week. Let all things be done for building up. Paul just keeps banging that drum. Everything we do as we come into this gathering is for building one another up. And we've shared, honestly, over the last few weeks when it comes to the, the science spiritual gifts that there is some skepticism in some of our hearts and, and we're a little bit just cautious about what might happen if someone shares a, a prophecy or, or a tongue. But, but if we all know that everything that we do when we come into this gathering is to build one another up, that strips that skepticism away. It should do. Because if our hearts are fighting for one another and all we're doing is responding to the love that God has shown us and we're pouring out in love towards one another, then whatever comes out of our mouth will be for the building up of each other. And so when we worship together, this isn't just a one-to-one experience. This is the building up of one another. It is mutual edification. So firstly, we participate. Secondly, verse 40 There is order in the worship gathering. Verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. It seems in this passage that there are three different groups, that that when the church comes together in the corporate gathering, there are three different groups that are speaking or engaging in, in ways which they shouldn't, and it's bringing disorder into the gathering. So firstly, you have people who are coming and speaking in tongues. In verse 27 to 28, you see a picture of them speaking over one another, that Paul, in his mind, has a really orderly um, picture of how tongues are going to be engaged in, but it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. That they're coming and they're all speaking over one another and you can't hear one tongue for the other. And not just that, there's no interpretation. And we know that that's fundamental. When tongues are spoken in the corporate gathering, there will be an interpretation. We will hear what is going on in a language that we understand. And so Paul says, if, if this is what is happening, if you're, if you're talking over one another, if there's more than two or three of you, if there's no interpretation, then sit down and just, and just do, do what you're doing with, with you and God. Don't bring that out to share with the gathering. And Paul says as well that this isn't out of our control. That there's order when we're speaking in tongues. And... And you see the reverse of this so often and, and unfortunately you see it on the telly as well if you have kind of those, those channels and um, even on YouTube and you, you kind of see um, tongues being spoken and so often what the perception of people outside of the church is of speaking in tongues is disorder. Lots of people kind of speaking together and, and, um, and, and things going on which just seem, seem not supernatural but unnatural. And people can often look at that and think these people are out of their minds. And Paul specifically says, he said this in last week's passage, that isn't what we want. We don't want people to come into our gathering and think that we are out of our minds. We want people to come into our gathering and think these people are building one another up. They are loving one another. They are, they are, they are engaging in a way which is orderly and decent. That isn't about the individual experience. It's about us as a family engaging together. And so you have the group speaking in tongues who are disorderly. You have prophets in verse 29 to 32. So, so people are bringing prophecy into the church. So it seems that, that God is bringing a revelation. And a few weeks ago we saw that that revelation needs to be weighed. That it is spoken out and there is time to, to, to interpret what is going on and imply what is going on. But again, in verse 30, it seems that they're just praying over one another. They, they're giving prophecies 
over one another. They're interrupting one another. They're not building one another up. There's just disorder again. Verse 32, Paul's saying, no, speak one by one. And again, there's control. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So you, can't, you don't just open your mouth and you've got no control of what, what comes out. No, he's saying you can, you can control that. What comes out of your mouth is, is subject to, to your mind. You can engage with your mind in this. There is a way that you can control this. It's interesting, this church in Corinth, they're kind of seeing the, the sign, spiritual gifts, prophecy, healing tongues, and, and everything's being kind of thrown into the gathering. And there's a sense where they think that they're seeing evidence of the Holy Spirit at work amongst them. And I'm sure they were, but, but ultimately the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that isn't what they see. That isn't the report that Paul is hearing back. He isn't hearing that that it is peaceful. He isn't hearing patience as one waits for another. He he isn't hearing kindness as one one sits and and refuses to speak because they haven't got a revelation. He certainly isn't seeing self-control. And this is all the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That isn't how God engages. Verse 33, this is what the character of God is. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And that is what we should see when the gathering comes together. God creates peace. He is peace. And so when we gather together, we should engage knowing that we have peace with God and peace comes from God. Christian worship should reflect the character of God, which isn't chaotic. It is peaceable and it is orderly. And so you have those speaking tongues who are disorderly. You have the prophets who are speaking disorderly. And then you have women. Verse 33 to verse 35. And we know something about the context of what's going on here. Can I just take a step back? And and this, this is a text where people will will misinterpret what Paul is saying, misinterpret what the Holy Spirit is coming to teach you. If you land in this verse alone and all that you read is that women should stay silent, if they want to learn anything, they should go home and speak to their husbands. If that's just what you read without the context of the book of 1 Corinthians, then you're, you're going to go down a rabbit hole which was never intended for you to go down. We know, having walked through this chapter by chapter, that there are certain ladies in the gathering who are engaging in ways, pushing the boundaries of of who they are and their identity as ladies, but also the boundaries in which have been set around them for how the church will gather together. And it seems specifically Paul is talking to a specific group in the church, specifically wives in the church. A group of wives in the church who are interrupting the gathering, they're asking questions or, or maybe they're interrogating the prophets who, who are speaking and ultimately undermining the leaders of the con- congregation. And they're generally disrupting the gathering in a way that, that Paul goes as far to say in 35 that it's shameful. The way that these ladies are engaging in the gathering, it's shameful. And so this is what he says in verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the Lord also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that ladies shouldn't speak? Is he saying that they shouldn't engage in the church? Is he saying that if you have questions, you two ladies, you should go home and ask Matt and ask Mark and not bring anything to anyone else? 
He's saying that you should just sit there and remain quiet. Now, some people will go there. They will. If that's the case, if Paul is saying that women should stay silent, that they haven't got a voice in the church, that if they have questions, they should go home, then what do we do with Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4? What do we do with Prisca in Romans 16? These are all ladies. What do we do with Mary in Romans 16, verse 6? Junior in Romans 16, 17. Tryphenia and Tryphosa in Romans 16, 12. All of these ladies function as co-workers in the church. They are co-workers in the gathering. And how are they going to do that if they remain silent? What do we do about Nympha who, who hosts a church in her home in Colossians 4.15? What do we do with what Paul has already said in chapter 11 verse 4 of 1 Corinthians? That, that the women should prophesy and pray with their heads covered but prophesy and pray. And he's talking about the gathering. What do we do with the prophecy that was given to Joel that, that our sons and our daughters will prophesy? And it wasn't just for the Old Testament. Peter reaffirms that at Pentecost and says that again. Your, your daughters and your sons will prophesy and they will pray. So what do we do with this? As Paul's saying, well, all that is gone. Strike a line under that. Forget what I said in chapter 11. This is a new way of working. Ladies, you just, you just stay silent. Let scripture interpret scripture. Remember the context of what Paul is writing into. There is a specific issue here. There is a specific group of ladies in the church, wives of husbands in the church, who are conducting themselves and speaking in a way that is shameful. Notice in verse 35, Paul, Paul doesn't say, um, doesn't say that, that they're prohibited to speak. In verse 34, he doesn't say they're prohibited to speak. He, he, says, he says what they're doing is shameful, not forbidden. But shameful. And actually, if you look at the, 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 um, the Greek behind that word shameful, it's a, it's a cultural word. He's saying that actually culturally, the, what you're doing, if people are looking in from the outside, it's disrespectful. It just doesn't sit right. It's, it's shameful. It's, it's wrong. The way that you're engaging, the way that you're undermining, the way that you're cutting in when a, when a prophet's trying to speak, the way that you're asking questions that aren't building up the gathering, they're actually bringing the gathering down because they're, 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 they're not encouraging. The way that you're doing that, it's shameful. It's embarrassing, ladies. It's disrespectful. It's disrespectful to your husbands who you've already been told to, to live in glad submission to. So if you have got questions... Just go home and speak to them about it. Don't use this as an opportunity to kind of raise your position of authority or, or make a name for yourself in the gathering. Be peaceable, be gentle, be kind, be self-controlled and go home and speak to your husband about it. There was a wrong time and a right time for the wise of these husbands to speak. Just as there was a wrong time and a right time for the prophets and the tongue speakers to speak. All three of these groups are to exercise a godly self-control. Actually, instead, what you see is a picture of disorder. They're all fighting for position. They're bringing division. We know that already. They're thinking of themselves instead of thinking of the body. And that isn't how Christ intended his bride to conduct herself. The bride should conduct themselves in line with verse 40. All things... All things as we gather together should be done decently and in order. 
So we participate. We have order in our gathering. And there's authority in our gathering. Verse 36, Paul says this, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. This is a bit of a kidney blow to the church in Corinth because they think that they are someone. They think that they've kind of made it, that they're this, 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 this church in this really kind of pivotal, instrumental, influential city. That they've been given these supernatural spiritual gifts and, and it seems like lots of people in the gathering have, have it and they're all speaking on top of one another. And as people draw in, they see just something incredible. But actually, actually Paul just gives them a, a blow to the chest and says, you aren't the only ones in the world that matter here. Stop thinking that you are the, are the, are the be all and the end all. Verse 36, the gospel didn't originate with you. It didn't start with you. You didn't come up with all of this truth. See, the wonder of the gospel is that we are all nobodies brought into a relationship with the great somebody. We haven't made it. We haven't made a name for ourselves. We haven't established a church here, Liberty Church, or, or the church in Corinth. We haven't made this in our own strength. This is a gift of God. And in the context of what Paul is writing here, the beauty of the spiritual gifts which he gives to his church is that we are just a speck in the cosmos. We are. We think we're all amazing that we can see through a telescope and see kind of light years away and yet there's light years and light years and light years after that. And God sees it all and he holds it in his hand. We are just a speck in the cosmos, yet he desires to intimately and specifically and directly speak into our circumstances through tongues, through prophecy, through revelation. How incredible is that? That does not make us feel small that actually we should be nobody. God shouldn't care for us. And yet he does. And not only that, but the gospel is reaching all the corners of the globe. We aren't the only ones who matter here. God is doing incredible things right across the globe. That he is pushing forth the kingdom in the underground church in China. He is pushing forth the kingdom in, in tribes which have never heard the gospel in the Amazon. He is pushing forth the kingdom in, in parts of the world which are untouchable by the police. And yet, and yet the gospel is penetrating through. He's pushing forth the kingdom in the traveling community in our city. He's pushing forth the kingdom. The gospel is bearing fruit in, 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 in Islam. Muslims being converted in communities where they have no contact with the gospel. Yet he's given them dreams and visions and they are led to the word of God and they are being saved. The gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. And yet he cares about Liberty Church here. He cares about the nine people sat here this morning. He cares deeply about the nine people who were sat here this morning. Deeply enough to speak specifically into our hearts, into our situations, to know our struggle, to know our weaknesses, and to give us each words of prophecy, words of tongue, to encourage us and to build one another up. We haven't made anything of ourselves, and yet he cares. And so Paul says, earnestly desire these gifts in verse 39. Don't forget, forbid speaking in tongues. But as you do that, as you make room for this in the gathering and you do it in a way which is orderly and decent, you do so under the authority of the commands that I have written to you. 
You do so under the authority of the inspired words. We do under the authority of the inspired words written by the apostles and written by the Old Testament prophets. As we step into this gathering, this isn't a free-for-all. And as we engage in these gifts, it isn't a free-for-all. We step into this gathering and we worship together in glad submission to the word of God. In glad submission. We pursue the spiritual gifts, holding fast to his word, walking in step with his Holy Spirit. Not making our own way, not kind of creating our, our kind of cool, um, innovative ways that we can function in these gifts. No, no, we hold fast to the ways that he has told us we do it. When we come together and we worship together and we sing or we, we bring a revelation or we submit to the teaching, we do that in line with the word of God. And if we don't, Paul says, if we don't, then we will not be recognized. We need to hear the weight of that. If anyone does not recognize this, if anyone doesn't recognize the inspired words of Paul, which are written in this letter, he is not recognized. So here you have this church in Corinth who have made so much of themselves. Oh, oh, we carry the gifts and everyone's prophesying, everyone's speaking in tongues. All of this revelation is pouring out. And Paul is saying, well, hang on a minute. If you don't believe that what I'm saying is true, if you're not willing to walk in line with what I'm saying, God won't recognize what you are doing. That is a fearful thing to hear. Yes, we are just a speck in the universe. But God knows his people. And we want to be known by God. And the day when we stand before him, we want him to look at us and to say, well done, good and faithful servants. Come in. We want him to call, to call us sons and daughters. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he looks forward to a time. A time that Paul sees in the church in Corinth. A time that we live in now, and he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus fearfully, listen, this should strike fear into our hearts. Jesus turns round to them and says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. They are words that we never, ever want to hear. Apart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. We need to feel the weight of, of what Paul says is, is the right way to come together and to worship together. We need to feel the weight of the expectation that we will participate with one another. That we will build one another up. We need to feel the weight of coming into the gathering and expecting to see order and decency. We need to feel the weight of when we come into the gathering of being prepared to willingly and joyfully submit the authority of God's word. We want to be able to do that joyfully. Not begrudgingly, not fearfully because, because we don't want to be recognised. Of course we don't, but actually what God brings us into has boundaries. Like, Paul, like um, David says in Psalm 16, these are pleasant lines for us. When we are walking in step with the Spirit, when we were walking in the commands of God, when we are walking in the good and right ways that He has made for us in the gathering, that they should be pleasant for us. It should be joyful for us. 
So in chapter 14, we can begin to see how important this gathering is. We can see why Paul contends for this. As someone whose heart above everything else is stirred for Christ. And he just wants to do anything that Christ has told him to do. And Christ tells him to go. And so Paul goes and lays his life down for him. And we can see why then he, he says and he teaches and he builds and he equips the church to see this body, to see this gathering as the important thing that it is. The thing that is worth fighting for. The thing that is worth getting right. Paul starts this section off back in chapter 12, verse 1, saying that he doesn't want the gathering, he doesn't want the church to be ignorant about these things. He wants them to enter into the gathering with eyes wide open. Not thinking about ourselves, but thinking about God and all of the love that he has shown us. And thinking about how we can demonstrate that love to those around us. And so we participate, we have order in our worship, and we have glad submission to the authority of the word. We need to be aware of the importance of the gathering, at the same time enjoying the privilege of the gathering, enjoying the joy of who we are, the bride of Christ. And so next week we're going to start in our Advent series, I'm going to start in Malachi, the Old Testament, and we're going to look at, at the prophecy looking forward to Jesus coming and, and claiming the prize, claiming the bride for himself. This is what Christ came to purchase. Not individuals who would just be a, a free-for-all and make up their own rules and, and try, and, try and have their own relationship with God on their own, but, but a bride, a people, a gathering. And Malachi says that this is the treasured possession for Christ. That's who we are. And so as we engage in this meal now, let's just recognize that, that we are God's treasured possession. That yes, we are a speck. Yes, we should be insignificant. And yet he loves us cares for us. He desires to speak intimately into our situations and he would call us his treasured possession. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us wandering through the wilderness trying to figure out how we do this well. We recognize that we have been called into a family. We have been, been united together through the blood of your son into a family. And as we come together corporately in this gathering on a Sunday morning, Father, help us by your Spirit to do that well. Help us to be people who will, who will want to participate, who will want to contribute, whether that's just singing over one another, whether it is bringing a prophecy, a tongue, a revelation. Help us to come ready to build one another up, not just to come to do business with you on our own. Help us to do that orderly and decently. Help us not to, to fight, to, to have our, our voice heard or our opinion heard, but where there are, are, are questions and, and ways that we want to engage to do that well, to do that respectfully, to do that in a way that honours the body. And would we do that joyfully in submission to your words? Father, I thank you that the words that you have given, the commands that you have given aren't burdensome, but they are a delight to us. Help us to see that. And the world would say the complete opposite. Help us to see obedience to the word of God as something which we, we long to walk after, that our heart's desire is to walk after. Father, we thank you for the privilege 
that it is to even be known by you, to be called your bride, to be called your treasured possession. Jesus, uh, our bridegroom, that, that you would come and you would, you would give your life for the bride. That shows us how much you care for us, show much, shows us how much you love us, shows us how far you are willing to go to show that love for us. And so, Jesus, we thank you for this meal which causes us to remember your body which was broken to purchase that that bride, your your blood which was shed to to forgive the sins of your bride. So help us by your Spirit now to to think upon ways in which we have counted ourselves as not being worthy of forgiveness. Point out ways in which we have offended you. Give us the humility to confess and repent of our sins. Help us to see the the beauty of the gospel which which declares that all of our sins, all of our wrongdoings, all of our unlawlessness that should exclude us from the kingdom of God and should have the Father saying to us, depart from me, I never knew you. All of that has been taken away from us and placed onto you, Jesus. And it was you who the Father turned his face away, not us. And instead we get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because of the work that you have done for us. And so Jesus, we take this meal with thankful hearts. And we take it as a people who want to care for each other. So show us again by your spirit ways in which we can care for each other for the rest of the time that we have together this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.